Good morning, everyone. Freilich and Hanukkah. It's great to see you. We're going to do something a little um, different than we usually do. We normally give an overview of the parsha, and if we're lucky, we have time to go into some specific psukim of the parsha. Uh, but this week, I want to share with you a blend of a message that's both from the parsha and that also comes from Hanukkah. So in Yanei Diyoma, really taking the two themes of this week, blending them together, and I think relevant to the majority of the people who are here, but in a way relevant to every single one of us. So uh, briefly first, just a quick overview of the Parsha, because it is a Parsha class and I don't, want to, um, I don't want to deviate too far from what we do. So this Parsha, Parsha's Miketz, really is a uh, tremendous distinction from last week's Parsha. In last week's Parsha, Yosef is on the descent, Yosef's life is on the decline, he goes from this handsome, young, up-and-coming dreamer, the apple of his father's eye, to Yosef's future being in jeopardy. He's absolutely sold literally from his family. He's sent to a foreign land, a foreign culture, learns a foreign language. There he rises to a position of distinction again. Everything he touches turns to gold in the home of Potiphar. And again, a false accusation. And he finds himself languishing in prison. Last week, Yosef is on the decline. I won't say the brothers on, on are being elevated, but the brother's life is stable. In fact, you can view it from their perspective as their life has improved. They've gotten rid of this dreamer, this miserable brother who thinks he's all that, the brother who attracts all the attention of their father. They finally got rid of him. He's out of their hair. And here at Parshish Miketz, we have the exact inverse. The exact opposite happens. The brother's life is on the decline, there's a famine in the land, there's no food, they're sent several times, and Yosef's life is on the rise. He's freed from prison. After all, he is remembered. It took two extra years because we spoke about in last week's Amunashir, Yosef took too much initiative. Our mission in life is to find that balance between initiative and faith, between, between relying on Hashkacha Pratis, Hashem's divine intervention, and our Bechira Chavsh is taking our initiative. Chazanish asked his Tal- the um, Reb Chaim rather asked his Talmud, Reb Shkop, Yosef, in the end of last week's parsha, the pasuk says that he reminds the Saramashkim twice, tells him twice, please remember me, advocate for me. When you get out of here, please remind Paro twice. He tells him his kartani. I can't find the pasuk, but twice it says that word, his kartani. Twice he says, remember me. Because he said twice, remember me. Chazal tell us he stayed two extra years in prison. So Reb Chaim said to Reb Shimon, said, tell me, and what if he said it once? How long would he be in prison? So, instinctively we would all answer, how long? One year. If by saying it twice he was in prison for two extra years, by saying it once he'd be in prison for... One extra year. Reb Chaim said, no. If he said it once, he wouldn't be in prison any longer. <laughs> because once you have to say. The opportunity, we all know the famous story, the person who's hanging off the cliff, and the helicopter comes, he says, no, no, Hashem's going to help me. We all know the story, right? And then Hashem, he falls, and he plummets to his death, and he gets upstairs, and he says, God, I have faith in you. Where were you? He says, where was I? He sent a helicopter and a fire truck, and uh, what do you mean, where was I? So when the Saramashka was being released, it's only appropriate for Yosef to say to him, listen, when you get out and you have Paro's ear, just mention me. Remind him of me. Remember what I did for you. Taking initiative, that's necessary. If we're unbalanced, too extreme in faith, and no initiative on our part, 
It's not what the Torah wants. You've got to go to a doctor. You've got to try to earn a living. We have to make an effort. We have to take initiative. On the other hand, he didn't have to remind him twice. To say it twice was a lack of faith. He did his initiative. That's what they say when the, when the lottery, when the mega millions is, you know, we don't play unless it's a billion dollars. Uh, I can't live off a hundred million. A billion, fine. After taxes and a lump sum payout, anything less than a billion, it's not worth playing. So how many tickets should you buy? So buy one ticket. Why? Because you've got to be in it to win it. You can't sit back and say, I want to win the lottery, and you bought zero tickets. You cannot win if you haven't bought a ticket. That's just the rule of the game. You can't win without buying a ticket. On the other hand, statistically, you don't improve your chances at all by buying two tickets. Nebuch, you stand in line behind some people who don't have the money to even afford the one ticket, they buy 10 tickets, 20 tickets, 50 tickets. They think I have 50 times more of a chance of winning. But 50 times .0000 whatever is still negligible nothing. So you haven't really increased your chances. So initiative you have to take by buying one ticket. But if you believe in Hashem, if He wants you to win, you'll win it with one ticket. You don't need more than one ticket to win. So when He said you buy two tickets, it's a lack of faith in Hashem. Yosef bought two tickets to get out. He said to the Saramashkim twice, remember me. So that's why two extra years, had he said it once, he wouldn't have spent any more time in jail. Saramashkim remembers him and he gets out when Paro has these dreams. It's instructive, by the way, that Paro has two dreams. What happened in between his first dream and his second dream? If you had one dream and it, you woke up startled, in order to have a second dream, what do you have to do? You have to go back to sleep. Paro wasn't startled enough to be awake. He had no problem falling back to sleep which is very instructive in its own right. Nobody can solve except Yosef who drops Hashem's name constantly, so much so that Paro is so impressed. He says, have you ever seen someone who has such a Ruach Elohim? Look at the divine spirit in this person. And we know he rises to the Viceroy of Egypt and the brothers come down and Yosef orchestrates this plot and first they have to leave one brother and then they have to leave Binyamin and he plants the goblet in Binyamin's backpack and that's how our Parsha ends. See, I am capable of doing a very short overview. That is how, that is how the parsha. you're wondering if I can, then why can't I do it every week? That is how the parsha ends, with this uh, false accusation to Binyamin, all orchestrated by Yosef, and Yehuda is about to speak up on, on the brother, on Binyamin's behalf. And the question, the overarching question of this entire parsha. You cannot read this parsha. frankly, you can't read Vayeshev through the end of Vayechi without wanting to understand what is going on here. Yosef has been away from his father for 20 years, his brothers. Why not reveal himself right away? Why not reunite? Why not reconcile? Why not send a telegram to his father? And there are many, many different interpretations. The Ramban says throughout our parsha that Yosef believed that his dreams, he was so invested in his dreams he didn't think that they were just the whims of a young man. He didn't just think Freudian, they represented his innermost thoughts or struggles or anxieties or, or uh, temptations. For the Ramban, Yosef understood his dreams as a form of prophecy. And that he had a mandate and responsibility, he had a mission to orchestrate and choreograph life until it is the fulfillment of those dreams. And until all the stars, until all of them, the other sheaves are bowing down to his, the dreams cannot be fulfilled and including his father in his dream, is deferring to him. So as much as it pains Yosef, he desperately wants to reveal himself, says the Ramban. He is eager to reconcile with his father. But he holds out and he shows the self-restraint. Why? Only because he's trying to fulfill the prophecy of his dreams. The Akedah Yitzchak disagrees. Akedah Yitzchak says, dreams, divrei chalomos lamalam velomoridim, divrei chalomos, dreams are insignificant. 
Don't read too much into dreams. Dreams are foolishness and silliness. Dreams just represent, you know, the, what you ate for lunch. It's still sitting in your stomach. They represent what you watched before you went to bed. They represent your fear, your anxiety, your worry. But dreams don't have truth. Dreams don't contain a level of prophecy. Dreams are silliness. This had nothing to do with, with dreams whatsoever. So what did it have to do with? Why is he restraining himself? Why isn't he revealing himself? I think we shared last week, Rav Yol Ben-Nun says, Yosef thinks his father's in on the plot. After all, what enabled him to be alone with the brothers such that the brothers who were brothers who couldn't even say hello, couldn't talk to him, now had him all alone in the middle of a field? Who orchestrated that? Who put that process in motion? It was not, none other than his father, Yaakov, who said, could you go out and find your brothers? So, of course, from Yosef's perspective, without the benefit that we have of reading the whole Chumash, of seeing all the scenes unfold in parallel, Yosef doesn't have that luxury. He's sitting in Egypt. All he knows is, Abba said, go check on your brothers. He checks on his brothers. Next thing you know, he's sold into slavery. Tempted murder, snakes and scorpions, sold into slavery. He thinks all along his father. So when Ravio Benun's reading of our Parsha, when is it that Yosef is ready to reveal himself? What spurs, what precipitates Yosef to reveal himself? Only when Yehuda says what? You can't do this to our father. He's already dying. He's lost one son. He's dying. He's empty inside. He's dying. He's, he's inconsolable. Our father's inconsolable from the loss of one son. You cannot do this to him. Yosef says what? One second. Back up. What was, what was that? Your father's what? He didn't have to do with that? You mean he's, he didn't know? That's when Yosef's ready to reveal that's Rav Yol There are many, many readings and interpretations of how to understand entirely our parsha, but not for now. Take your hand out. Now we're going to deviate what we normally do. Instead of looking at specific psukim, we're going to look at a specific topic. And this is a topic which is very much in, uh, in our parsha and relevant to Hanukkah. And as I said, please God, it's relevant to all of us. And it is the notion of Jewish grandparenting. What does it mean to be a Jewish grandparent? And a Jewish grandparent is very distinct, is very different. To be a Jewish grandparent is not just to be a grandparent in the secular sense. And to be a grandparent is not just about genetically being a grandparent. It means what does it mean to be committed to continuity? What is our responsibility to continuity? For those who are not in the position of having children or not yet having grandchildren, but we all have access to the Jewish future through our neighbor's children, our nieces and nephews. So the message, the theme is broader and resonates more broadly. So we begin source number one. I'm fast-forwarding to Parshas Vayechi. And there in Parshas Vayechi, Yaakov anticipates it's the end of his life, and he calls his grandsons close, and he says, I want you to swear. Yaakov says, do me a favor, do not bury me here in the exile don't bury me here. I think it's instructive for Jews. I personally, I already, it's a schooler for longevity, for Arichas Yamin, but my wife and I already have plots in Eretz Yisrael. I believe that the one place that we can know that our great, 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 great grandchildren will visit, as secure as we think in South Florida or elsewhere, is Eretz Yisrael. And that's Yaakov's sentiment. Don't leave me here. Don't leave me here. A couple years ago, I went to Cuba for a day. On a humanitarian mission, we brought what's left of the Jewish community, which really is, is nothing. Most of them are intermarried. But we brought them medicines and goods that they can't get. We spent one day in Cuba, which as far as I'm concerned, was half a day too long. So, <laughs> but we visited, we went with Rabbi Smolarsuk, 
who was a Rebbe in Hello Day School, Katz Hello Day School, and here at Hadar, and he visited the kever of his grandfather, who's buried in Cuba. His grandparents fled Europe, and they were in Cuba. And what's unbelievable, we went to the Jewish cemetery in Cuba. His grandfather's headstone is made out of marble. It's magnificent. At that time, there were 15,000 Jews in Cuba, yeshivas, kolim, erev, kashras, mikvah. It looked like the Jewish community of Cuba was on the rise, was thriving, would be there forever. And it was a year after his grandfather died that the revolution took place and so on and so forth. Everyone fled, and his family hadn't been back to visit that kever since. And standing there, I thought to myself, how many Jews throughout history, where they were, thought, this is it, we're here permanently. Marble headstones, beautiful cemetery, they'll visit forever here. How many? Now instead, all of Poland is one big Jewish cemetery. And the cemeteries that were there for centuries, many have been turned over. So I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad if they've arranged burial places anywhere else. But Yaakov Avinu felt the sentiment. He said, we're here in Egypt temporarily. I don't want you visiting me here, nor do I want my destiny, nor do I want my, my afterlife to be among the Egyptian people. So make me a promise, don't leave me here. Everyone of whom it says his days drew near to die did not attain the age of his fathers. What does that mean? Yitzchak lived 180 years. Yaakov lived 147. So he wasn't, he wasn't close to the same amount of time. He lived shorter than his father and his grandfather. So you see that in terms of chronologically or longevity, was Yaakov the one who lived longest of our avos? No. How do we know that? This Rashi. He lived shorter. And nevertheless, now come to our Parsha. Source 3. There's a famine in Israel, and Yaakov sends them, and he says the Egyptian economy is doing pretty well. Cross the border and come back with some food. But they ate it all up. So he said, I want you to go again, I want you to get more. Says Rashi, Wait for the old man. Wait for the old man. Yehuda said, leave the old man alone until the house will run short of bread. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Yaakov. And how does he refer to Yaakov? Zaking. Yaakov is not as old as his father, grandfather. It's not that he's the old man because he's that member of the family who lived longer than anyone else. And yet, he's referred to as Zaken. Source 5. He greeted them and he said, How is your father of whom you spoke? Is he still in good, good in health? When is this parsha? Next week. So we went to Vayichi, to Miketz, to Vayigash. You're getting dizzy here. So Yosef reveals himself to his brothers and he says, You said your father is alive. How, that father, is he still, how, is he, how does he refer to him? As Zaken. So we have Yehuda calls him a Zaking. Yosef calls him a Zaking. The Rambam calls him a Zaking. Source number six tells us the story of Kriyashma. We all know, with the exception of Yom Kippur, we say Shema out loud, and when we follow it up with the words Baruch Shem, that we say quietly. And why do we read it thus? Why are we saying that second pasuk quietly? In the moment that Yaakov gathered his progeny, when he anticipated his death, 
He tries to inspire them and arouse them to follow the path of his father and his grandfather, <coughs> the Shalosan. And he asked them, Yarmalem Bani, Shamish Bachem Psolas, Mishena Omidimi Biyuchud, Adon Kol Olam, Kenyan Shamalan Moshe Rabbeinu, Penyesh Bachem Yisho, Isha Bachulai. So he turns to his sons and he says, No, maybe someone here is not part of the program. Anyone else not invested? We have someone here off the derech or on their way off the derech. Anukulam, so they all answer, because Yaakov anticipates something's not right. I have a chush, I have a feeling here something's missing. So they all say, Anukulam v'amrlo, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. They all affirm their commitment. They proclaim that they are absolutely part of the program. Klomar Shema Mimenu, Avinu Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Who's the Yisrael in Shema Yisrael? It was originally recited as an affirmation, Yaakov's children and grandchildren to him. Shema Yisrael, Yaakov, listen. Hashem Elokeinu, we understand who Hashem is. Hashem Echad. He's our one and singular God. Yaakov responded so grateful, so relieved that they were all part of the program. Baruch Shem. How does the Ramam refer to Yaakov? Hazakin, the old man. Zak the Medrash, source 7, the Medrash Rabbi, Ravuna B'Shem Rav Idi Yom Arksiv, V'yismuchua Amal Isnadvam, Kibalev Shalim Isnadvu L'Hashem, V'chulay V'chulay, go to the bottom. The Medrash refers to Yaakov as Yisrael Saba. Now Saba here doesn't mean Zayda in the classic sense of Zaba. Saba means old man, the altar. The Saba Mikelm, Saba Mislabodka is the altar. Altar doesn't mean the grandfather, altar means... Alter means the older person. So here the Medrash. So we have Yehuda calls him Zakin. And Yosef calls him Zakin. And the Rambam calls him Zakin. Not in this order. The Medrash should have been first. And the Medrash calls him Saba. The Medrash calls him Zakin. Why is Yaakov being so disparaged? Old man? That's his nickname? This is a man, by the way, who has no less than two names. Yaakov or Yisrael. But neither of those are good enough. The Medrash, the Rambam, have to come up with a third? Yaakov doesn't suffice. Yisrael doesn't suffice. Hey, I have an idea. What should we call the Bechir Ha'avos? What should we call the most chosen of the choicest of the patriarchs? What should we call the father of the Shiftei Ka? I have an idea. Let's call him Old Man. Does that sound right? It's horrible. Old Man. Old Man. Now that my beard is white, now that I'm a father-in-law, I get called Old Man. I just came from my, my son's kindergarten Hanukkah production. So my wife sent a picture of her and me and our son to the family WhatsApp. She said, the grandparents of the kindergarten class picture. So my wife basically is calling me Zakin, calling me the old man. It's a wonderful thing. So why is Yaakov called Zakin? Yehuda, Yosef, Medrash, the Rambam. So my Salavechik says the following, source number eight. Says the Rav, in Talmudic and Midrashic literature, Yaakov is referred to as Yisrael Saba. And in this term is employed even in modern usage to designate Jews who observe the old tradition. In what manner, we asked, did Yaakov distinguish himself that his name became the generic name for an entire people? And why is he in particular called the Zakin? And the answer is, says the Rav, that Yaakov was the first patriarch to establish direct communication with his grandchildren. He was the first to make a solemn declaration, a historic pronouncement, which is responsible for the sense of closeness we still have with the past thereby laying the foundation of the dialogue of the generations. He literally conquered time and space when he said to Yosef, 
Your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, no less than Reuben and Bishimim. In fact, they received portions of the later division of the Holy Land, as did the sons of Israel. Though a second generation removed and nurtured in an Egyptian environment, Yaakov equated them with his own sons who had been reared close to him in the Holy Land. Ephraim and Manasseh are different. They don't grow up in the lap of their grandfather in his secure base medrash. They grow up going to public school. They're growing up in Egypt. In fact, some of Farshim understand the debate between Yaakov and Yosef over the hands and the order and what do you mean you can't see them was a debate over Yaakov didn't believe that they could represent the continuity given their upbringing, given their surroundings, given the culture, the climate in which they lived. And Yosef reassures them, no, 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 don't worry. Don't worry. The equivalent of, as we studied several weeks ago, love and garati mitzvah shamarti. Yaakov said it from a position of weakness. Even though I had no work, I got fired every Friday, I had to find a new job every Monday, I never ever compromised my values. And Yosef's now telling his father, even though they grew up in the palace, in the lap of luxury, they had everything, they never compromised their values. Ever. So Ephraim and Manasseh are different, but yet Yaakov, when he is convinced, Yaakov treats them, he upgrades them to the level not of grandchildren, but of children. Not of grandsons, but of sons. Avram never spoke this way about Yaakov, that he was to him as Yitzchak. Yitzchak never said it about Reuben and Shimon. Yaakov was the first to impart special blessings to his grandchildren. He blessed them even before he assembled his own sons for their blessing. He embraced them between his knees and he placed his hands on their heads. Signified symbolically there was a direct transmission from Yaakov to Ephraim and Menashe. No generation gap in the house of Yaakov. The halachic ruling that B'nai Bonam Arekei is derived from Yaakov's declaration about Ephraim and Menashe. It is this notion of continuity. It is the notion of responsibility. It's the notion of transmission of values and lifestyle, of vision, of destiny, of destiny. In other words, in the secular notion, a grandparent is the one who's supposed to spoil the grandchildren. A grandparent is the one who showers them with gifts, who takes them on vacation, who lets them eat chocolate for breakfast or whatever late at night or ignore their bedtime. That's the role of the grandparent, to spoil the grandchildren. You put in your time as a parent to discipline and now that you're a grandparent, step back and enjoy, enjoy the ride. But the Jewish notion of grandparenting is very, very different. When Yaakov elevates his grandchildren to the level of children, when Yaakov interacts with his grandchildren and feels the awesome responsibility to transmit to them and to create a sense of continuity, the mission, the role of a grandparent is sacred. The mission, the role of a grandparent is never in retirement, it's never passive, it's not to be loved and adored. There's an awesome responsibility of a grandparent. Avram and Yitzchak transmitted their spiritual heritage to their sons, not to their grandsons. The latter received it from their fathers, but there was no direct communication between Avram and Yaakov, between Yitzchak and Reuven and Shimon. The influence of the grandfathers on their grandchildren was indirect. Yaakov, however, related directly to his grandchildren. He did not need an intermediary or an interpreter. He was a direct dialogue. He leapt over the gulf of generations and transmitted the great Masorah of Avram directly to Ephraim and Manasseh. Despite the discrepancy of years, the zucking. The carrier of the old tradition succeeded. How appropriate that our people is called Yisrael or Yaakov. It was he who created the Jewish community which ensures continuity. What preceded him were patriarchal families. He laid the foundation for a people. The covenant was made initially with Avram. It was not until Yaakov that the secret of perpetuating the Mesorah was discovered. The Medrash tells us the sons of Yosef studied with their grandfather daily after his arrival in Egypt. It was the Zakin who listened to their problems, conversed and worked closely with them, played and planned with them. The most effective teacher is not he who lectures his students with detachment, 
but he who befriends his disciples, and together they become co-searchers and co-dreamers in the pursuit of truth. Yaakov knew the secret language of Mispan Adoros, of uniting generations. Some can do it, and unfortunately many others, even noted scholars who are intelligent, inspired leaders, cannot bridge the generation gap. The parent, grandparent, or teacher who sensitizes a child to his antecedents is the guarantor of the survival of the Mesora. Until Yaakov, it goes to the next generation. But Chuta Meshulash, it's only when you have a trifold generation, it's only when you have continuity, some momentum, some traction, can you believe that there's a future. Yaakov is the first, and he introduces the idea of intergeneration, door la door. Yaakov is introducing the notion that not the parent and the child unit, but grandparent, parent, child. And thank God we've merited in our day something extraordinary. Great grandparent, grandparent, parent, child. And in some cases, maybe even in this room, great, great grandparent, great grandparent, grandparent, parent, child. For years, for centuries or millennia, Jews never dreamt, many never met their grandparents. My father describes. My father and my grandparents came after Kristallnacht. They left on the last boat out of Germany. And they got over before the war, but they lost all their family. I'm named after two great uncles, Ephraim and Chaim. They lost everybody. They lost their parents. They lost everybody. So my father describes when he was a little child, I don't know, three years old, young enough he didn't really understand this. He said when he was a little child, he thought having grandparents was Gaish. Because the only ones he knew with grandparents were non-Jews. He didn't know Jews who had grandparents. If you lived in a community of survivors, or even those who came before, but the grandparents didn't make it, he said he didn't know any Jews who had grandparents. So due to oppression and persecution, for a long time Jews didn't know their grandparents. And due to health, or not the longevity of life, but life is too short, people didn't know their grandparents. We are living in miraculous times. People know, not only my daughter who just got married a few weeks ago, there were four great-grandmothers. Kenai Nahara, Bliai Nahara, poo 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 poo. I don't even believe in that, but poo 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 poo. It's an incredible, extraordinary, we're living in miraculous, extraordinary, extraordinary times. So, what does that mean? That we just have better pictures? The photographer, oh, come quick, we have four generations, take a good picture, make a magnet. Is that what it means? Is that the blessing of the continuity that we have better photo ops? We have better photo ops than they ever had before? It means greater responsibility towards that continuity. Being a grandparent and a great-grandparent and Kanainara, a great-great-grandparent, is not about sitting back and taking it all in. One is never retired from the responsibility of transmission, of transmitting values, and not just of paying tuition, which we know well. Grandparents still feel that responsibility. But you don't get away with the check. The check's the easy part. It's hard, but it's the easy part. The harder part is not just to spoil but it's to inspire, is to model, is to transmit, is to create this Mesorah community, is to be relevant, is to be relevant. The Rav continues, contemporary man is so proud of his technological achievements, he has contempt for the past. His pride in progress makes him reject introspection. The man in the street has little relationship with and consciousness of continuity, interdependency between glorious periods of antiquity and the emerging present. Even medieval and modern history from which not many years separate us appears mythical, romantic, and elusive. In other words, if you're a child, your grandparent is a dinosaur. They can't figure out how to turn the phone on. And you with your phone, you're printing 3D kidneys. I don't know. So the grandparent, grandchild says, what do I have to do with my grandparent? Oh, they're cute. I stroke them on the cheek. You know, they're cute. You know, I visit them. But I have nothing to do with them. They're irrelevant. I can't relate to them. 
says the Rav, from a secular perspective, that generation gap places an enormous divide between generations and renders irrelevant. But the Jew of the Masorah has a capacity to live in retrospection. Revelation and tradition erase the bounds of time. Distance and time is rendered irrelevant. Thousands of years have elapsed. He walks back and forth from antiquity to modern times. The primary success of the old cheder, deficient in many respects, lays in the spirit of, com- of compenetration of a distant past and a dim future with the immediate present. For Jewish boys and girls, Avram is not a mythical figure, an ever-present inspiration. They experience his tribulations and wanderings. They travel with him from Syria to Canaan. They feel the trembling and fear of Yitzhak during the Akedah. They escape with the Ak of Taharan. They're imprisoned with Yosef in the pit. They lead the Jews with Moshe through the desert. They sing with David. They rebel with Rome, against Rome with Rabbi Akiva. They meditate with the Rambam and are privileged to have Rashi as a companion. They're not historical has-beens. They're dynamic living heroes who visit us from time to time, bringing instruction, inspiration, and hope. Upon this phenomenon of historic continuum was founded the strength of the Masorah, conceived as a historic stream of Jewish spirit. It is this ability to span generations that explains the impassioned solidarity of American and world Jewry with the struggle of the state of Israel. Why should a Jew in New York or Chicago who never saw its Israel and had heard little about it in earlier years be so committed to its welfare and preservation? Apparently the Jews who lived in the Holy Land 1900 years ago, of Yochan and Zakkai and the heroes of Masada and Beitar are somehow communicating with us today. And the antenna of the Jew is uniquely sensitive and receptive to distant signals. The lines of transmission are not always clear, but the message has been getting through. The role of a grandparent is to say that Judaism is not bound by a time. The Torah doesn't expire. It doesn't become outdated. It doesn't need a version 2.0. It doesn't need an app update. It's not a phone that needs an upgrade. But the Torah is timeless. And the grandparent represents the timelessness of Torah. And that was the responsibility. That's what Yaakov introduced. And that's why Yaakov is called the Zakein. Maybe some of you saw, because it went viral in the Jewish world a few weeks ago, Rabbi Zev Lef, who was the Rav of Moshev Matityahu. He was here for Shabbos last year. He was a Rav in Miami. He grew up in Miami. So Rabbi Zev Lef was, there was an enormous soccer match in Scotland. And the camera was panning the crowd, and it found an old man with a long white beard whose face was buried in a book. And the announcers were talking about and referencing the old man in the crowd. So the Israeli media picked up that that little scene made its way viral, and uh, everyone was trying to identify who it was, and quickly it became apparent it was Rabbi Zevlef. What was Rabbi Zevlef? A great gadol, the Torah and Adam gadol. Rabbi Zevlef, who's a big time chacham, the Rav Meshav Matuzio, Machab Svarim. What was he doing at a soccer match in Scotland? So they actually, Israeli news, interviewed his children who live in Israel to find out what was he doing there. They said it was a Shev Shmaisa he was holding. Turns out it was a Yerushalmi. He's learning Gemara Yerushalmi. So what, what was he doing there? So his children explained. He has children who are on Shlichut in Scotland. And he went to Scotland to visit his children and grandchildren. And his grandchildren said they wanted to go to the soccer game because Israel was playing Scotland. He said, I came here to spend time with my grandchildren. You love soccer. I'll go with you to the soccer game. He sat at the soccer game with his Gemara. To me, it is the living expression of this insight of Rabbi Salavechik, of Yaakov the Zucking, of being that Baal Mesora. He's sitting at the soccer match on the one end. He's spending time with his grandchildren. He's relevant to them. He's enjoying what they enjoy. He's connecting with what they connect with. He's telling them, it's not narishkeit, stupidity, silliness, bittel Torah. You enjoy soccer. I'm coming with you to the soccer match. But his nose is also firmly in the Gemara, in between, during, because he's not that invested. He doesn't care so much. He doesn't care about soccer. What does he care about? His grandchildren. He actually spoke about it. The clip of Rabbi Lef himself speaking about it came out, came out afterwards. But this is this image. These are the words of the Rav, who had said about the Rav that before his grandchildren would visit him in Boston... He would look up the box score of the Red Sox. He could care less about sports. He didn't know how baseball worked. But he would look to see because he wanted to know that he would have something to talk to his grandchildren about. 
He would connect to his grandchildren. He could remain relevant. He could remain that Baal HaMesora, that person to be able to transmit. So Yaakov is called Zakein, says the Rav. Why? Zakein doesn't mean old man. First of all, we know Zakein stands for the Zakin is the one who has acquired a wisdom. Zakin here, the Saba, is the grandparent. It means he is the grandparent biologically, but the grandparent also symbolically from the sense of the Baal HaMesorah, the one responsible for the transmission. There is no generation gap. He gives the bracha first to his grandchildren, then his children. Grandparents are the carriers, they are the ambassadors, they are the transmitters of the Mesorah. You can retire from your profession. You can find all kinds of interesting hobbies. But when you're spending time with your grandchildren, it's not, it's not lacking intentionality and mindfulness. It's not just to get on the floor and enjoy or to spoil them on a cruise. It is with an awesome responsibility to play not just a role, but arguably the most significant role to be the transmitters of that Mesorah, to be the role models of that Mesorah. And to do so, one has to remain relevant and contemporary and be able to connect. Hamalach Agoel, this is the bracha. Rashi says, Yivarech Esa Naorim. Menashe and Ephraim are getting that bracha first before anyone else. Source 11, page 8. Said the Rav, continuing, when it's achieved, the Mesorah relationship between grandfather and grandchild is an emotional intensity, intellectual closeness, in some ways transcends the parent-child relationship. Psychologically, one would not expect a deep identification between two individuals whose great discrepancy of years could easily spawn alienation. Yet, grandparents more than parents are sensitive to the transiency of time and to the pressing need to assure the perpetuation of one's lifelong principles. You know, parents don't have time to be transmitters of the Messiah. You know why? They have to pay for that kid's tuition. They got to go to work and they got to earn the money and they got to make sure the kid has the latest sneakers and the clothing and can go to the camp he wants to go to and has the technology they want. And for the parent, they're so involved in earning that money, they barely have time to breathe. They don't have time to be transmitters of the Messiah. And they're also the ones who have to discipline the child and give feedback to the child when the report card comes in or he stayed up too late or ground the child if he crossed the boundary. So there are many reasons that the parent is not positioned best to be the transmitter of the Mesorah. And it leaves that job to the grandparent. Child is far more than a biological extension. He embodies one's hopes for spiritual continuity. If as is found frequently a bond between old and young is achieved amongst Torah Jews, it's due to the singular awareness of a Mesorah community, which past, present generations are contemporaries. Distance and time is bridged in divergence and outward styles rendered irrelevant. This is in sharp contrast to the secular scene where generations too often confront each other as cultural antagonists. In the secular scene, cultural antagonists. So this is the theme of, of our Parsha, of Yaakov. From here till the end of Sefer Bracious. Then Yaakov takes on this new role. He's the Zakin. Yehuda calls him a Zakin. Yosef calls him a Zakin. The Medrash calls him Saba. The Rambam calls him a Zakin. Why? He's an old man. They're disparaging. They're making fun of him. He looks like an old man. No. He played the role of the older generation. He was the responsible transmitter of the Mesorah. But it's also the theme of Hanukkah, in which we find ourselves right now. Look at what Rabbi Soloveitchik says in another context in a book called Days of Deliverance in Source 13. The Ramadan's account of the history of Hanukkah begins in the days of the Second Temple. It's a reference not only to the chronological question of when the events occurred, but also to the question of the position of Ner Hanukkah within the framework of Halacha. Mitzvahs Midivri Kabbalah, commandments of received tradition, were ordained by those Chachmeh HaMesorah, who were at the same time prophets. But Mitzvahs Midivri Sofram, commandments were ordained by the sages, were introduced by the Chachmeh HaMesorah, who did not belong to the community of prophets. The duty to observe mitzvahs midivrei sofrim is not inferior to that of observing midivrei kabbalah. Both are binding based on the mitzvah 
you shall observe to do according to all that they inform you. Not all mitzvahs legislated by the prophets belong to Divrei Kabbalah. And he goes and he distinguishes between the two. But now go to the second paragraph. Go to the third paragraph for lack of time. At first glance it's puzzling. Why does the Rambam add it's well known with regard to Purim but not Hanukkah? We know Hanukkah is just as popular as Purim. Every Jew is well informed about both. Yet the Rambam considers Hanukkah a holiday which is not known. While Purim is a Yom Tov Yadua. He introduces Purim as Yom Tov Yadua and his Mishnah Torah. He doesn't say the same thing about Hanukkah. Why not? And the answer is obvious. Yadua means the holidays mentioned in Scripture, which is open and accessible to everybody, scholar or simpleton. What's the difference between Purim and Hanukkah? Purim has a book in Tanakh. It has the Megillah. You open a Tanakh, you have access to the story of Purim. What does Hanukkah lack? A book. It's the book of Maccabees. It's not incorporated or it's not included in Tanakh. Therefore, everybody knows of Purim. The Megillah tells us everything. But Hanukkah belongs to Torah Shabbat Peh. The oral law which is transmitted from generation to generation through the Chachmeh Mesorah. Hanukkah exists only within the context of Mesorah. There's no document that lends it a normative character. God's words recorded in the written Torah authoritatively get generates the duty to observe Shabbos, Pesach, Sukkot. But the obligation to light Hanukkah candles to say Hallel derives not from a written text, but only from the Mesorah. What obligates me to perform these actions is the fact that previous generations acted in the same manner. The oral tradition represents not only the continuity of study, but of action. Mesorah precipitates the obligation to observe mitzvahs. Thus we understand the role of Haroeh, the person who simply sees the candles burning. I was that person. I was my nephew's bar mitzvah was in Israel, was in Israel this past Shabbos, and I left Sunday night to come back to America. So I had a problem. Sunday night was the first night. Hanukkah, we spoke about this in the afternoon kolo yesterday. We spoke at the Hadlaka Osa Mitzvah or Hanacha Osa Mitzvah. So what do I do? I was going to be flying the first night. What's the halacha? Where do I light? What do I do? So it was easy for me. My wife was home. So the mitzvah is near Yishu Beso. The mitzvah is really on the home, not the person. As long as my home had a lit candle, I was Yotze. My wife lit candles at home and I was Yotze. I even had the benefit of being overlapping in the same halachic time zone at one point. My flight that was supposed to take off at 12.45, only took off at 1.10 a.m. So two minutes before we took off was the Zman Hadlaka here. And I FaceTimed, as my wife lit the candles, FaceTime, I was right there answering Amen. It's the ultimate Ner Ishu Beso. I don't know that it has halachic value at all, but it was a Ner Ishu Beso. I felt included in her lighting on my behalf. But Sunday evening in Israel, long before my flight, first I was with my wife's sister and my brother-in-law and their family. I had a couple of my children with me. And then we went to my sister and my whole family. I went to two Hanukkah lightings and two Hanukkah parties that night, of which neither of them could I light because I was flying out that night. But what did I recite? A birchas haroah. Gemara says haroah, sarach levarach. That if you see the candles, you make a bracha she'asanisim. Even when you are exempt from lighting, for whatever circumstances you're exempt, but if you see the candles, it's the only mitzvah we have a birchas haroah. I don't see you put tefillin on and I make a bracha. I don't see you shake the lulav and I make a bracha. I don't see you light the Shabbos candles and I make a bracha. I don't see you eat matzah and I make a bracha. There's no other mitzvah that I see you do a mitzvah and I make a bracha. The one exception is Hanukkah candles. Haroah mevarech, I see you light, I make a bracha of she'asanisim. Why? Why? The roah is not just an onlooker or a passive observer. He's a participant in the transmission of the Mesorah. A person who lights plays a double role. In addition to lighting the candles, he transmits to the roah the particular Mesorah of the Hanukkah candles. There's a double connotation in lighting Hanukkah candles, the lighting itself, and the lighting is a medium of conveying the Mesorah. As far as the Mesorah element is concerned, the Roah is as involved as the one who lights. It takes two to pass on a tradition, so the Roah too. Because Hanukkah, those other mitzvahs, are only about the person performing them. 
But Hanukkah and the Prisume Nisa, Hanukkah is all about adding light, using the Hanukkiah, the menorah, as an instrument to transmit a Masorah. That's why if you come back, you live alone or you, you live with others, but you come back very late at night and you need to light, you have to wake people to come see. You can't light if there's no one watching. It takes two to tango with the Hanukkah candles. So haroam mevarich. I can be Yotzei Tefillin, I don't need anyone to see me. I can shake down with me, I don't need anyone to see me. I can blow a shofar, I don't need anyone to hear me. But when I light the Hanukkah candles, I need a spectator, I need an onlooker. Why? Because the Hanukkah candles represent this transmission. Represent the giving from one to the other. It represents the continuity, the passing of the baton, the passing of the light, and the increasing of the light. That's why the one mitzvah where haroa mivarech, the one who sees makes the one who sees makes a bracha, a participant in the transmission of Mesorah. Chanukah is the yontif of Mesorah. There is no Torah Shabbat Peh and Chanukah. What else is the difference when it comes to Chanukah and Purim? Purim has a book in Tanakh. Where else does Purim have a book? It's not a trick question. In Shas, Maseches Megillah, Chanukah neither has a book in Tanakh nor does it have Masechta in Mishnayos. We've discussed uh, previously. Why not? Why didn't Rabbi Danasi make a Maseches Chanukah? Why no Masechta Chanukah? You have Maseches Megillah. There's an ancient tradition. The um, Tamei Amitzvos brings down that Rabbi Danasi, who descended from David Melach, was bitter at the Chashmonayim for stealing the monarchy, and he got even by not incorporating Hanukkah into a Mishnah. That's a tradition that's brought down, I think, in the name of the Chassam Sofer. The problem is no one's ever found it in the writings of the Chassam Sofer, but moreover, it makes no sense for several reasons historically, but it also makes no sense practically, because Rabbi Danasi mentions Hanukkah in eight or nine Mishnayas throughout Shas. Hanukkah is mentioned in the Mishnah. There's no Masechta dedicated to it. Why that is probably has more to do with censorship and avoiding persecution historically than it does with any intent of Rabbi Yudanasi. Right? But the bottom line is there's no Masechta Chanukah. And others suggest that there's no Masechta Chanukah because Chanukah is the yontif of the Mesorah, of Torah Shabbat Peh. Chanukah celebrates that notion of the oral transmission of the interpersonal relationships, of intergenerational. It represents continuity. Not something that's in a book that anyone has access to, but something I heard from my parents, my grandparents, that requires a direct communication. So there is no Masechta Chanukah. There's no book of Hanukkah in Tanakh. There's no book of Hanukkah in Shas. It is the Yontif. It is the holiday of Torah Shabbat Peh. And that's why the way you do the mitzvah, if there's no one around to hear the Megillah, can I read the Megillah for myself and be Yotzei? Yes. It's better, Pursume Nisa, Barov HaMadras Melech. It's better to have many people hearing the Megillah. But I'm Yotzei the Megillah if I read the story to myself. But Hanukkah says the Rav, Haroa Mevarech. You need both sides because it's all about transmission. It's all about giving one to the other. It's all about continuity. Source 14, page 10. Shlomo Kabach. There's such a thing as teaching and there's such a thing as giving over. Giving something over to someone is much deeper than teaching. Torah says, Moshe received the Torah on Arsina and he came down, but it does not say he taught the Torah to Yeshua. It says, Umisora, he gave it to Yeshua. This is the deeper depth there is. Sometimes one meets someone who can, and one can study with for 10 years. They can teach you for 10 years, but they don't give anything over to you. Sometimes you meet someone and maybe they don't teach you so much but they give something over to you. Rav Mendel of Arka, the silent Rebbe, was a Rebbe for 40 years, and those 40 years, he only spoke eight times. Even those times, on a teaching level, he didn't say anything. One time he was sitting with his chassidim for 14 hours, at the end he said, Hashem Echad. And then he said, happy is the one who knows that Hashem is one, meaning God is one. On a teaching level, he didn't say anything. But when he said Hashem Echad, he gave it over. 
We need someone to give over Yiddishkeit to us. We need someone to give over to us, not to teach us that there's one God. Torah says that Yaakov, Yisrael, loved Yosef more than all of his children. Naturally today, on the low level we are, the father loves his son, he says to him, man, oh no, he would never say man, that would be too far out. He said, this is, remember the author of this? He says, son, I want to do something special for you. Buy you a trip to Bermuda. But what does it mean Yaakov loved Yosef more? Listen to what Rashi says. All the things which Yaakov learned of the yeshiva of Shem Be'ever, he gave over to Yosef. He taught all his children the same information, but to Yosef, he gave it over. Besyankif, the Ishbitzer, says the most unbelievable thing. Sometimes the holy prophets knew everything clearly, and sometimes they knew everything, but it wasn't clear. The Medrash says Yaakov loved Yosef more than all his children. It also says Hashem says to Yisrael, I love you. This is my humble explanation. What did Yaakov give over to Yosef? He gave over to him that he should know that Hashem says, I love you. Knowing that God loves you is something you cannot get via teaching. It has to be given over to you. So the thing is like this. Yaakov didn't have a clear prophecy because he was not to know that Yosef was to be a slave. But Yaakov knew that Yosef needed something special because he was the first Jew in exile. Hanukkah is the one holiday that has no tractate in Gemara. Every the holiday is a long tractate, even Purim. Hanukkah is only about a page and a half in the Gemara. Hanukkah is a holiday of giving over. It says in Kriya Shema, you should teach your children when you sit in your house, when you go on your way. Teaching is at home, but giving over is on your way. There's no time for teaching on the way, only for giving over. Hanukkah's teaching and giving over became one. In Hanukkah, I have to put lights at the door of my house and the house shines in the street. When you teach someone, you're not sure his light will increase. But when you give over to someone, you know his light will grow. That's why each night of Hanukkah, we kindle one more candle to shine into the world until all the streets of the world are full of light. Taught in the House of Love and Prayer of San Francisco, Hanukkah 5733. That notion between teaching and giving of Teaching is cerebral. It's information. It's in the brain. It's intellectual. Giving over experiential. Giving over is a feeling, a warmth, an affection, a love. That's what grandparents give over. They don't just teach. It's a beautiful image and a beautiful sight when grandparents sit and learn with their grandchildren. It's lovely. But when they give over, making a bracha, benching, preparing for Pesach, lighting the Hanukkah candles, greeting the Shabbos, what a grandparent gives over is much more than just what they teach. That's part of this yontif of Hanukkah, this yontif of the Hanukkah of the, the yontif of Torah Shabbat Dayan Moshe Swift was a Dayan in the London Basedin. He has a wonderful book called Moresh's Moshe, which I happen to have bought off of eBay. Page, uh, source 15, page 11. It's not so readily available, but it's a fantastic safer. Dayan Moshe Swift. He died in 1983, the London Basedin. There's a debate in the Talmud between Shammai and Hillel regarding the procedure of lighting the candles. Shammai says, we begin the first night of Hanukkah, eight lights, and we go from eight to one. Hillel says, no, we begin with one and we increase from one to eight. And the menorah is aglow with eight lights on the last night. Where lies the logic of their argument? The rabbis wonder. The explanation is succinctly stated. Shammai wishes to look forward to the days to come. On the evening of the first day of Hanukkah, there are eight days to come. And the second or seven, and so on. Each day that passes is gone. It's done. It's gone. There's no memory. Shammai is living where? The future. How many days are there left? So the first night, we're so excited. Eight days left. Second night, seven days left. It's the incoming days, the future. However distant it may appear, but it's assured. Hillel's philosophy was different. There can be no future unless the past is carried forward. When the first night of Hanukkah passes, the second day arrives. Kindle a new light for the second day but we rekindle the light of the first day. When the third day comes, we rekindle the previous two days. Today's light cannot be kept aglow unless it burns with the light of yesterday, and tomorrow's light is not assured unless today's light accompanies it. Isn't this fantastic? I love this insight. 
No wonder that Hillel's opinion has been universally accepted. No new light will burn unless the old light stands at its side. No younger generation can succeed unless it stands side by side with the old. But this we must keep uppermost in our minds. It's the new light that's kindled first when we make the bracha on the Hanukkah lights. The old die out, they cannot survive unless they first see to it the light of today. The youth of the generation is aglow with the faith and tradition of the old. This shot will change the way you light Hanukkah candles forever. Magnificent. Magnificent. Shammai says yesterday's yesterday. It's old, it's gone, it's distant, there's no memory, it's done. So what's all of life? It's the future. The future. First night I got eight days left, second night I got seven days left, and so on. Hillel says, you know, not so fast. Not so fast. There is no future if you've forgotten the past. There's only a future if it's built on the shoulders of the past, if it's continue, continue, continuation of the past. So what do we do? First we light yesterday's candle, and then we add today's candle. But which do we make a bracha on first? Today's candle. Because yesterday's candle is yesterday. It's relevant. You can't have today without yesterday. It's relevant. But it's today's candle that we're celebrating because it's today's candle that's going to light tomorrow. So it's the implicit, integrated into the very way that we light, we paskin like Beis Hillel, is also this notion of continuity, of transmission, of intergenerations. I don't think we'll live to have eight generations living at once, but this candle is the children, the parents, the grandparents, the great-grandparents, and all their lights are burning side by side. And the truth is, while we may not have all eight living at once, we could have all eight represented at once. To know our family eight generations back, to see you, this candle is this child, the parent, the grandparent, the great-grandparent, the great-great-grandparent, and to look at a menorah and to see eight generations. That's why we are still here, and that's why we're confident about we are going. But how do we do it? And what's that role of grandparents? How are you that zucking? And why can we be so confident on Hanukkah that we'll light tomorrow's candle? So I think the answer is the Gemara and Shabbos, source 15. The Gemara and Shabbos says, A person who habitually kindles the Shabbos and Hanukkah lights will have sons who are Torah scholars. Exactly which lights? Is the Machlokas Rashi? Is it the, is it the Shabbos candles? Is it the Hanukkah candles? If you have a habit of lighting the candles. But then the Gemara continues, If you're careful with mezuzah, you'll have a beautiful home. Hazar betzitzes, you're careful with tzitzes, zochal talos, now you'll have a nice talos. Hazar bekiddush hayom, zochal memalai garbari yayin. If you're careful when you make kiddush, you'll merit to have wonderful kegs of wine. So the marshal picks up a discrepancy. Anyone else notice it? When it came to mezuzah and tzitzes and kiddush, what was the word, what was the instruction the Gemara used? Hazar. Be cautious, be vigilant, be careful. And when it came to the candles, what word did the Gemara use? Haragil. Why? Says the Marshash raises the question. He gives his own answer. He says, Azair is talking about the mitzvah is incumbent on men, but... The lights, the Shabbos candles are incumbent on the woman. So Aragil is that the man should accustom himself to be vigilant that his wife light the candles. So the Marsha asks the question, he gives his own answer. But the Shemish Shmuel, the Sachat Shavar, gives a different answer. Source 17. Says the Sachat Shavar Rebbe, the Shemish Shmuel. He quotes the Marsha's question. And then he says, two, four, five lines down. Yeshlamash lachor tzach lavin delashin haragil mashmasha asa mitoch hergel. 
Haraga means habit. Habit is negative. Habit, rote, somebody who just does something, is a Dover Maguna. You're on autopilot. You're a robot. You're not mindful. You're not conscious. You're not conscientious. Haragil means you're on autopilot. You formed a habit. You're just going with the motion. As the Pasuk says. Mitzvah sanasha milamuda. You've just trained your body to go through the motions. So you close the sitter, you take the three steps back at the end of Shemona Asrei, you have no idea, you don't remember saying one word. Now we have videotape. Security cameras will show that you said every word. But you don't remember saying one word. Because it's mitzvah sanasha milimuda. We have a habit. A person forms a habit. When I moved houses, I remember it was a week after I had moved from Captiva to Thornhill Green, and I was driving home from somewhere, the next thing I know, I found myself in the driveway of the Captiva house. I left and then I went to my new house. Why? I had that happen. I didn't know I moved. My foot on the pedal and my hands on the steering wheel were haragil, hergel. They were accustomed, wrote, Mitzvah Sanashim Limudah, Haperishtin, Enir Aminyan Ayyvanim, Koka Vanasa Maislatumah, Timu Kolashmanam Shabaychal, Vatimos Benos Yisrael. The Yavanim's whole goal was to contaminate, to impurify. How did they accomplish that? What is a fire? The flame looks like it's continuing. The flame looks like it's constant. But there's new oil being drawn into the wick every moment. It's being re-energized by a sense of newness and freshness at every moment. So externally, it looks exactly the same. The flame looks permanent. It looks like it's continuing. But underneath the surface, there's new oil, there's new fuel that's driving that flame at every moment. And says the Shem Yishmu, the Sochet that's our mission. The davening on the outside looks the same, the Shabbos on the outside is the same, the mitzvahs are on the outside are the same. But the Hizchachas, the fuel, the newness, the freshness on the inside. It's got to be renewed. It's got to be fresh. It can't grow old. It can't grow stale. It can't be a habit. It's got to be special. What is Haragel Bener? The only thing that you should have a habit of is never having a habit of anything. That's the Shem Yishmos Pshat. Haragel Bener. Be Ragil in Ner. Ner is the symbol of nothing being rote, nothing being habit, everything being fresh and fueled anew. So the candle, the flame is the symbol of newness, freshness. Haragel Bener means the only thing that you should do by rote is that you never do anything by rote. The only habit you should have is that you never do anything by habit. It's fantastic, no? That's the Shemish Mo's Pshat in Haragel Benir. If we want grandchildren who are on fire, what's the answer? We have to be on fire. If we want grandchildren who are inspired and passionate and represent the future, the brightness, the illumination, the continuity of our people, then we have to be on fire. And we have to illuminate. To be a transmitter of the Mesorah is to not just give information, it's to give over. It's to give over an experience. It's to give over excitement and passion and enthusiasm and joy. 
the geschmack of being a yid that is timeless, that has no time gap, that has no generation gap. That's our responsibility. We'll end here, but the rest of the sources speak to the halachic responsibilities. The Gemara and Kedushin talks about the obligation of grandparents to teach Torah to grandchildren. The Marshal, the Shulchan Aruch HaRav, on the next page say, you may not like this part, but that grandparents have an obligation to pay tuition if the children can't afford. It's a halachic obligation of grandfather. It's actually only the paternal grandparents have a halachic obligation to pay the tuition of the grandchildren if the parents can't afford. Just wait till the schools get a hold of that psak and start sending you the invoices and billing you. But in the other direction, grandchildren have a responsibility towards grandparents. The Ramah gives two opinions about whether grandchildren are obligated to honor grandparents. The myths of Kibbutz Ve'em. Does Kibbutz Ve'em apply to grandparents? And Rav Sternbach Paskins, yes, through the parents. Rav Sternbach has a psak, has a tshuva simen resha ayin zayin at the end. So we saw that both our parsha, Yaakov, Yisrael, Zakein, Saba, and the holiday of Hanukkah have in common. This is the period of the year in the darkness of the deep winter, the frigid cold of the deep winter. This is the time of the year that we renew and we create a fresh spark and we remind ourselves of our responsibility, whether we are literally grandparents or figuratively we're all grandparents when it comes to the responsibility of the transmission of our sacred Torah Shabbat Peh. Have a great week and a Freilich and Hanukkah.